You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, everybody doesn't like something, but nobody doesn't like Jeff McLarge. <laughs> hey, that's cool. Yeah, that's true. Most people do like me. And those that don't yeah. like me, I haven't met them yet. So at least you I got that very going popular and always well received. Yes, I, I try to be. What's up? What's going uh, on? I know what's much. going on because I saw you this weekend. Yeah, it's true. We did. We got to hang out a little bit. I had a great time coming down to the old stomping grounds and plowing my way through a couple of apparently long-lived record stores that I had never heard of because they must have opened after I moved away. Uh-huh. And uh, I spent some time looking for some new vinyl and found some. And I found mostly old vinyl that I brought home, which is both good and bad. Good in that I found some stuff that I really wanted to listen to. Bad in that the artists that recorded them don't get anything from used record sales. So the, you know, four cents that like Zebra would get because I bought their first record, <laughs> they aren't going to get it. So Randy Jackson, reach out to me and I'll cut you a check for four cents. But that I is great the time. argument to be made for streaming services. Right. Because whenever you showed me that you had bought the Zebra album, I went yes. to Spotify and I was like, you know what? Jeff brings up Zebra a lot. I don't know who the hell they are. I yep. remember they had one song called Tell Me What You Want. Yep. The album with Tell Me What You Want is not available on Spotify. No, I'm um, not surprised. It's a, yeah. Uh, they have like, I, I, they didn't have much of Zebra on there. Like they weren't even a verified artist. Right. That's, that's how like little they have going for them over there. Technically only put out like one and a half albums. So they, they put out their self-titled <laughs> record on Atlantic Records back in, I don't know, sometime in the 80s. And how I found myself in possession of it as a youngster was another yep. friend got it and was like, hey, this is pretty good. They remind me of Rush. I don't particularly like Rush, but I like this record. And it was the three fe- guys in the band. That's why they the remind band. you of Rush. That's right. That's, that's, that's where the similarities end. It was the first featured record that you, that they showed as an as an example on the yep. Columbia House Records and Tape Club advertisements. So I joined, or my mom joined the Columbia Records and Tapes Club, and I got that record from that ten records for one cent or whatever it was, and had it in possession of mine. In what digital format or actual format ever since? Seriously, I know two people that really like the band Zebra. You're both of them. <laughs> um, no, the other one is my friend Victor. Victor, mm-hmm. I remember he really liked that that song, Tell Me What You Want. Yeah. Well, it's it. what happened was like they got a little bit of airplay for Tell Me What You Want, and then they got a little bit for Who's Behind the Door, which is a longer form song. And they were both on MTV as well for the, both of those songs. But then they didn't have anything else yep. that, that they made videos for. And this is like really early 80s, right? Yeah, this is like 83. Okay, yeah, that tracks perfectly because in 83, MTV probably had like 800 videos by then. But still <laughs> not a lot. Still not they a lot. They were still you know, putting on anything they could grab. Right. So then they released another record called 3.5, which was half a new record. 
and then half a live album, which is already the mark of a band that has spent all their writing energy on their debut record and hasn't had time yep. to write anything good. And on that record, they made two videos, one for Wait Until the Summer's Gone, which is okay, and another one for Bears, which is terrible. I've gone back oh, recently to watch the video. That's the one you sent me. That I sent you. To watch the video for Bears. And again, I, I think the song is fine. It's dumb as you can get, but I don't care. Yeah. But the video is, it definitely falls into the bucket of the Billy Squire what the hell am I doing in this video style of video? I felt so bad watching it. Like, it doesn't look like anybody knows what the concept is supposed to be. There's a guy in a $5 bear costume. It just sucks all the way around. And it's really funny and terrible. You know what's hilarious about this is I'm right now I'm on their Spotify page. Right. And one of the things is, is a compilation album called The Best of Zebra in Black and White. And there are four songs. <laughs> It just starts and ends there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I bet those four songs are. And now, uh, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell no, me you're you wrong. Want. Tell it's me not what there. you want, right? It's not Who's there. The, it's not there? Who's behind the door? No. no. What, what are they? They're One More Chance, Children at Heart, Take Your Fingers from My Hair, and Riverside. Wow. Two of those songs, I don't even know. <laughs> and I have both of their records. So... <laughs> I don't know what that tells you, but I picked up a Zebra record. I came home. It's flawless. There's not a scratch on it. You know why? Because somebody bought it from the Columbia House Record and Tape Club and went, oh, this looks like Bread or Rush or, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I'm not going to listen to that. And they put it away, and I ended up with a flawless copy, which made me very happy. Yeah, they bought it because they had to pick 12 albums. I'll get this one. I think I know that band. I think that's that's exactly what it was. It's one of those like, oh. I've already got the, the eight that I really want. Now I just need four more to round this out this dime. <laughs> All right. Before we get into the show proper, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. If you had to make change for a dollar. Yep. There are X amount of ways that you can make change for a dollar. How many different ways are there of making change for a dollar? So I'll give you three. 100 pennies. Mm-hmm. Four quarters, right? Three quarters and twenty-five pennies, but using okay. all the other different combinations. How many different ways are there to make change for a dollar? Oh, geez, Louise, I'm gonna need a piece of paper and a pencil. So I guess as we freight train our way through this this episode today, I will write down. All, I will write down all of the ways that I can think of. That's foreshadowing, kids. Is it? Yeah, you know, it is. All right, this is the week beginning March the twenty seventh, and it's my turn to start. No, I'm only kidding. It's your turn to start. Oh, I was all ready for you to talk about. March 27th, 1986. Sammy Hagar plays his first live show as the lead singer of Van Halen. It's the kickoff tour in Shreveport, Louisiana. And the set list opens with them doing what you would think would be the like the lead-off single from 5150, which is the album that they were touring on. But no, because they know Van Halen fans love older Van Halen, it... They opened with You Really Got Me. Then they did all of pretty much the 5150 record after that. So, yeah, they opened up with You Really Got Me, which is, I guess, a Van Halen song, but it's actually a cover by the Kinks that yeah, it's a Kinks, Van Halen Kinks made, made, uh, made famous. So I'm looking at the set list here. The only other song that they did from the David Lee Roth era is Panama. Oh, one and of the better yeah. songs off 1984. I'm not going to lie. I like that one. Yeah, they didn't, didn't do any like real deep cuts or anything like that. You think Ain't Talking About Love would be a good song to play, but nope. Nope. I, I, they avoided David Lee Roth ever like it was the 
The David Lee Roth era, I guess. <laughs> well, I think they really wanted to separate themselves. In 86, I think David Lee Roth was touring with Billy Sheehan and Steve Vai on the Eat It and Smile tour. And I'm right. sure that there would have been some like annoying overlap and comparisons and whoever was writing up going to see both shows. That said, I saw Van Halen's next tour by mistake. My brother's car broke down, so I went and picked his friends up and took them to the show, and he rode back with his car in the uh-huh. tow truck. And they did like Eruption and a bunch of older stuff mixed in with the things from OU812 and 5150. I've said this before, and we both agreed on it. There was a lot of backflack against the whole Van Hagar thing. They, people say, oh, Sammy Hagar ruined Van Halen. I disagree. I think Van Halen, <laughs> Van Halen ruined, ruined Sammy, Sammy Hagar. Hagar. Yeah, I think yeah. Sammy Hagar's solo career prior to Van Halen was good enough. Ha, get it? That's the first song on the 5150 album. Yes, it was It was good enough. It, it's a shame that Montrose didn't take off the way that it, I guess it could have. It was, I think it was ahead of its time. So it, it was falling uh, into that hard well, rock. Yeah, you want to back up and explain to people what Montrose is? Because some people uh, don't yeah. know. Montrose was Sammy Agar's like, first band that he was renowned to be in. So it, was, right. uh, it wasn't like a super group or anything, but it, it sort of falls into like the T-Rex, Edgar Winter style, like not quite a jam band, but hard rock that was ev- sort of evolving out of arena rock in that mid to late 1970s. And then he, he came into his own. As a solo artist. Whenever I have um, like a Spotify just, you know, radio station playing, mm-hmm. occasionally Montrose will come up and then my ears will prick up because I hear it, you know, I hear Sammy Hagar's voice. Right. And then I'll be like, what's this? And it's like Montrose. I'm like, yeah. oh, all right. No wonder I'm not really all that familiar with it. Okay. Right. Yeah. They don't get any airplay nowadays, at least not on terrestrial radio or even satellite radio that I listen to. So if I bump into them, I'm always like, oh, yeah. That's a Sammy Hagar song I don't know because it's Montrose. And going to that first Van Halen album with uh, Van Hagar album, I should say, the first album that they did with, with Sammy Hagar, I really, really liked it when it came out. I remember being excited because all the cool kids liked Van Halen and I wasn't crazy about them. And then this album came out and I was like, oh, wait, I like Van Halen now. And all the cool kids thought Van Hagar was crap. And I, <laughs> so that, that didn't work out so well for me. But uh, I really, really did like that album whenever it came out, except for one song, which is like a throwaway song at the end called Inside, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I went back and I listened to it not all that long ago, and Inside is actually the only song on the album that I really, really could go back and listen to now. Oh, well, it's, you know, as we age, things things change, right? Yeah. A little, a little, very quick story from when we were in high school. I remember when this record came out, and I was in line in the cafeteria, and the two people in front of me were talking, and one of them says, "That new Van Halen record, fifty-one fifty. I picked up the tape yesterday. It sucks." And the other guy goes, "Yeah, dude, I don't know. I read X Men comics." And that was that was the entirety of the exchange. It was so <laughs> funny, and I remember like, "Wow, that's really funny." And didn't color my opinion of either of those things. I like both records, <laughs> the record and the X Men, but I thought that was really funny to that, find that delineation line. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to the 28th, a dark day in music history, Jeff. Oh, yes. Much darker than uh, than Sammy Hagar touring with uh, Van Halen. <laughs> on March the 28th of 1986, just one day later, more than 6,000 radio stations of all different format varieties, right. they all played 
We Are the World, simultaneously oh. at 10.15 in the morning, Eastern Standard Times. I remember that really well. That was the day that world hunger ended, Bill. Do you remember? Yeah. That song ended, no one was ever hungry again. That was the greatest nope. thing. Yeah. Oh, wait, that uh, didn't We covered happen. We Are the World uh, <laughs> pretty early on uh, in our Worst Song Ever segment. Yes. This song, I get it. You know, I get it. Because the charity single was really popular at the time. Yep. As far as American artists, you name them, they were there. Yep. Even Dan Aykroyd, who's not even American, he was there. Right. Yeah, because they were shooting the I, video for, like, Ghostbusters or something, right? At the same place they were shooting the video for this in the studio. No, he was, like, just going in to see his agent. They were like, hey, you want to be in a video? He's like, okay, I guess, yeah. There's no space aliens. You want to buy some vodka out of a crystal skull? Just get in there and put in the headphones, Dan. Like we covered, like, two years ago when we did this for the worst song ever. This song is just bad. It's a bad (laughs) song. It's a a bad song. I mean, never mind the fact that you got Cyndi Lauper doing it. And... And Bruce Springsteen over singing the hell out of it. Take all of that out. Just do it as a cover song with yeah. like some local. This song is just garbage. It is definitely difficult to sing along to. And anyway, well, all, what's, what was kind of cool about this story and why we chose it isn't the song itself because we've already done that. But yeah. it was getting 6,000 radio stations all to play it at the same time, irrespective of their format. So. You know, somebody who, l- who listens to, like, a, a traditional country station all of a sudden is listening to, like, a Quincy Jones record. Somebody's listening to, like, the, an all-new station is all this for this three and a half minutes or eight hours, however long that song actually is, is listening to, you know, We, we Are the World. And it's meant to, I mean, I can understand the sentimentality behind it or the reason to do it, but it had zero impact. It's like performative <laughs> uh, charity. Yeah, imagine that you're tuning in to find out the baseball scores and you're down and down, the sea is not a home at all. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with my radio? <laughs> like it's, Everything's playing. We are the world. Are we being invaded by space aliens? <laughs> are they trying to summon back you know, the ghost of Marvin Gaye? <laughs> all right, moving on to the 29th. March 29th, 1974. Speaking of ghosts, uh, in 1974, Chinese farmers discover the Terracotta Army, which is buried near Xin, China, where 8,000 individually designed and manufactured clay Chinese warriors statues are buried in guard of the first Chinese emperor, Qin Shi Huang. I hope I pronounced that properly. The guy who started the, the Qin dynasty that became China. Oh, wow. I've seen pictures of that. What'd you say? 74? 1974 is when they were discovered, yes. And they're still, Most, they're, they're they're still the- excavating them today. Oh, I'm about to say, I mean, I, I felt like that was more recent. But then you said there was 8,000 of them, right? Yeah, 8,000. 8,000. Oh, like every other weekend, they must be like, oh, we found some more. <laughs> we got another one over here. Huh? Nope, it's a different guy. <laughs> different mustache. Yeah, they're all like, know? it's not like it was mass produced either. They're all like, like each one's different looking from the next, isn't it? Right, yeah. Well, there's a lot of similarities between them, but... It was meant to represent the army, the standing army that the emperor had at the time. So they're individualized to the people who actually were in his court, which, right. you know, I mean, if, if you're going to go out and leave a mark, that's a one way to do it. What I don't get is how it ended up buried and un, and like lost for 4,000 years. You right. Think that, you know, like they'd have a pyramid or something like the Egyptians did or, or some of the, the Aztecs or Incas or et cetera. Well, somebody left a note or something. Well, they said I couldn't take my toys with me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> watch this George Lucas and then off he goes yeah you know into the ground it's neat though you can still go online and 
and like click through. There's a couple of different museums that have exhibits that you can can look at them, and it's really neat. All right, moving on to March the 30th, 1867. Wow, what a screw job this was. <laughs> the United States buys the Alaskan Territory from the Russians at a bargain basement low price of two cents an acre. It is nothing but hectares and hectares of snow. We will lose no money on this. No, don't worry. And Alaska is enormous. It is like roughly almost half the size of the continental United States. Very large. Like, if you look at it, it's like, it's huge. It takes up, if you, like, overlay it over, you know, the regular United States map, it takes up all of the Northwest, most of California, and into Texas. It's a, it's a huge, huge chunk of land, which the Russians thought was just barren and empty, but little did they know there was gold in them there hills. <laughs> yes, there, there was gold. There was an oil, too, and that would become a lot more important later in the history of Alaska, but it's still not the most populated state, but it is uh, relatively well populated for the amount of land that is uh, habitable. Again, a lot of Alaska is permafrost and tundra, but along the coast, that's where the cities of Nome and Barrow and Juno and Anchorage. Juno and Anchorage, yeah, yeah, that's where they all are, so. Now, the reason why uh, Russia sold it at such a uh, cheap bargain basement price, as I said, they were actually looking to dump it because they thought they were going to lose it anyway if war broke out with the United Kingdom. Right. So, yeah, they was just like, yeah, 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 you take it. The best thing we could do is sell this to you. So you hold on, we give you a very bargain cheap price, and then uh, we go to yeah. war with the UK. If we lose, uh, then you sell it back to us later. That's the way we do it, okay? And we're like, absolutely. Certainly, sure. Dimitri. That's exactly what we're going to do. And what was the overall price? It was like $1.6 million? It was uh, $7.2 million at the time, or $109 million in 2018 dollars. Two cents an acre. So that's cheapo, cheapo. Yeah, we and we got all that back because we found stupid amounts of gold over there. Right. Suckers! And now they're like, well, we have Siberia still, so ha! Which is lovely. <laughs> all right, moving on to the 31st. March 31st, 1983. Monty Python's film, The Meaning of Life, is released in the U.S. And for most of, I th- would think, the people that are in our generation, Bill, this would be the might be the first one that they see in the cinema for Monty Python yeah, films. Yeah, it was the first one I ever saw. I saw it on HBO. I remember watching it on HBO with my father. I think we've said this before. Generally speaking, the very first Monty Python movie that you see tends to be your favorite. Yeah. And this was the first one that I saw, and I really do like this one. Ah. I saw this one in the cinema with either with my parents or with some friends whose parents bought us tickets. But yep. I, I saw it in the cinema, and the anthology style of the storytelling was lost on me a little bit when I was at the age that I was when this film came out. But I've grown right. to like it quite a bit as I've gotten older. It's not my favorite. Like you, my first one is my favorite. The first one that I saw was Monty Python and the Holy Grail when it was shown on like Channel 2. When my a cousin of mine was babysitting me as a little kid, and I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. You know what I really remember about this? I watched it on HBO, and I was watching it with my friend Craig. Mm-hmm. And the movie starts out with this, like, 15-minute short film before the actual film starts mm-hmm. with a bunch of, like, you know, suit-and-tie executives... And it turns into like a pirate scenario. (laughs) And it just goes on and on. It's very long. It's kind of funny, but not really funny. Right. 
but it's it's very long. Like I said, it, it drags on for about a good 10 or 15 minutes. And then finally the movie starts, and then, like I said, from that point forward, it's very funny, very much a Python-esque. And then about two-thirds through the movie, the pirate ship shows up again. And I just remember <laughs> my friend Craig, like, throwing up his arms, and he's like, oh, God, not this again! <laughs> yeah. Again, it, it's more of an anthology story that's tied together by the idea of living a single life. So you start at childbirth and you work your way through primary school into young adulthood and then to adulthood and age and death. Each of the little vignettes that's in there is re- it explores death or, or life in some other way. So there's like the World War One guys who are buying the presents for their commanding officer. And each one is getting sniped as they bring the thing up. And do you uh, Do you have a favorite sketch? I think my favorite sketch in The Meaning of Life is... The one that's set with the calm and cool British in Africa, and one of them has had his leg eaten by a tiger. Yes. And and <laughs> the doctor's like, oh, well, hmm. Uh, I, well, you know, if, you, if you're playing football, just try and favor the other leg. And, and he yeah, says, it's well, all very well, matter it, of fact. Yeah. Right, it'll, <laughs> it'll grow back then. We're like, oh, no. So just, a, <laughs> just like bacteria. So like, oh, no, no, no. He says, well, germs are what we call... In the medical profession, something very, very small and could not possibly have made off with your whole leg. <laughs> <laughs> I like the one with it's right after the famous Mr. Creathol yeah. uh, sketch, where I it's Eric Idle. He plays a wa- uh, the waiter. Yes, and he's like, "Come on, right this way. Follow me. Follow me." And it goes on. Right. It's a, a very British style of uh, yes. humor where it just drags on and drags on. And he's like, come on, follow me. It's only a little further. And it goes on for probably a good minute and a half. Mm-hmm. And then he shows the camera his childhood home. And he goes, I know this doesn't mean much to you. Well, f*** you. <laughs> f*** off. <laughs> and, 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 and it's just a complete turnaround in, yeah. in the attitude. It's Like I said, it's very British humor. Funny film. Good songs in it, too. Yes, uh, very fun musical songs. I, yeah, you know what? I take that all back about the the waiter. My favorite sketch in there is the Galaxy song. Uh, probably the best song that they've ever done. Moving on to April the 1st. Jeff, I don't know uh, how big of a fan you are of April Fool's jokes. Mm. Um, eh, meh, it depends. When I was a kid, sure. But ever since like social media... April Fool's jokes are just impossible to get away with, you know, because right. everybody's trying to do it at the same time yes. and nobody's buying it. Right. That being said, April 1st, <laughs> 1996, your right. friends and mine over at Taco Bell, <laughs> as, a part of a, as a part of an April Fool's joke, Taco Bell takes out ads like seven like real big newspapers. Mm-hmm. And they say that they have purchased the Liberty Bell... <laughs> <laughs> and, and to help, you know, to reduce the country's debt and have renamed it the Taco Liberty Bell. Wow, that's so funny. There is public outrage, as it were. Of course. And the White, yeah, the White House press secretary uh, at the time, Mike Curry, leaned into it, saying that the federal government was also selling the Lincoln <laughs> Memorial to the Ford Motor Company and renaming it the Lincoln Mercury Memorial. <laughs> The fact that they got away with this long enough to say, you guys, this is an April Fool's joke. The fact that so many people fell for it, and then, like I said, the secret, uh, the press secretary just leading into it is awesome. I love this story. I think it's really funny. And I, I like that the government sort of leaned into it and played along as well. And, you know, if you're going to rile people up, 
that's really the way to do it. So props to Taco Bell for getting it started. And definitely props to the, I think it was the Clinton White House in 96 for, for playing along and being funny. Yeah. Uh, so to put the ads in the papers, it cost Taco Bell like $300,000. Right. But the sales that it generated in the first two days of April were over a million. So success. Success on their part. <laughs> great. Great. It's a good return on investment for a prank. Yep. <laughs> yes. No. No, I'm hungry. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up the week. April 2nd, 1978. Velcro hook and loop fasteners are first put on the market. Ooh. The reason I call them Velcro hook and loop fasteners, Bill, is because mm-hmm. for years and years and years, I had a subscription to Writer's Digest magazine. And inside Writer's yep. Digest magazine, there would be ads taken out by companies. Hormel, for example, would have an ad that says, we love when you use spam in your stories. Don't forget to call it Spam Brand Luncheon Meat by Hormel, which no one is ever going to do. But they're doing that to protect their trademark. To show that they're paying attention to their stuff being used. And Velcro used to have an ad like that, too, that said, If you use Velcro in your story, make sure you call it Velcro Hook and Loop Fasteners. And, again, no one is going to do that. Velcro is effectively a noun and pretty much a... A verb and an adjective at this point, by virtue of what it is. There's no, I don't even know that there's a, another brand of hook and loop fasteners that isn't Velcro. And even if there was, you're just going to call it Velcro anyway. Velcro. It's kind of like band aids. Yes. Everybody calls whatever plastic strip they use, they call them band aids. Whether they're Curad or whatever generic brand that you buy elsewhere, you just right. call them band aids. It's Velcro is one of those things that right. you know it by that name, and that's that. And what'd you say, 78? 1978, yeah. I don't know. Velcro just seems like it should be older than that. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not, though. It was, I, or, or I would have had Velcro clothes as a kid because, man, I, stung, I always was unzipped or unbuttoned or unsomethinged. And with Velcro, I'd have known because it would have right. gone. Oh, my God. Remember, like, Velcro sneakers? Oh, like, yeah, I had them when I was a kid. My kids, my friends made fun of me mercilessly because they looked like a uh, an aging, demented diabetic when I was 12. Yeah, what's the matter? You couldn't handle tying your shoes? Actually, right? funny story. Right now, I'm wearing house slippers and... Ready? Yeah, they got Velcro on them to, to, <laughs> to close them up. <laughs> I, I have Velcro on my cheapo computer bag, so I still use it every day. I always wanted to just, like, get, like... A Velcro car seat and just wear an Angora sweater so I could get out of wearing my seatbelt. <laughs> ah, I'm just sure that would work really well. Just a thought. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays. March the 27th, 1963, film writer and director Quentin Tarantino. Ah, one of my favorites. I haven't really seen a lot of his work. I do like it. I like the one Death Proof there that was part of like the Grindhouse uh, anthology. Anthology, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was I like that. I remember how everyone said about Quentin Tarantino movies. Are like, I hope you like dialogue because <laughs> you know, yes. much like a Kevin Smith movie, the movies his movies tend to be very dialogue driven. It's definitely a lot of dialogue, but you can see the influence of other films that he likes in the films that he does. So while Pulp Fiction is a literally, it's a Pulp Fiction film, it might as well come out of the. 1940s and or the 1970s by virtue of the way the storytelling works uh-huh. stuff like Jackie Brown is like a thriller from the 1970s that would have come from like the golden age of the police detective movie you know yep he's done westerns that are like spaghetti westerns he's done films that aren't westerns that are like spaghetti westerns too like the Kill Bill films 
yeah. which are both homages to Japanese samurai movies and also homages to spaghetti westerns. So he has a whole milieu that he draws from in his imagery and his style that makes his films distinctive to watch and listen to. I have a couple of favorites in my top ten that are just his films. We had, so, we yeah. had gone to see this horror movie around Christmas time. I don't even remember the name of it. But the movie was like an hour and a half long, but it had so much dialogue padding in it that had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And my friend right. James Go was making reference to how horrible the movie was. And he said something along the lines of, even Tarantino would have hated that movie. <laughs> he does like the talk. All right, moving on to the 28th. March 28th, 1981, actress Julia Stiles, who... I think she does more TV stuff now, if she does anything, but I know her from being in the Bourne series of films and from being in 10 Things I Hate About You, which was my first real introduction to her as an actress. Yeah, I mean, I remember when she first like hit the scene, as it were. I'm not sure if 10 Things I Hate About You was her first movie or Save the Last Dance was, but that's I remember seeing her around on that. Mm-hmm. It's not because I don't like her, because I do, I just haven't really seen a bunch of stuff. I I ended up seeing 10 Things I Hate About You later on because it got recommended to me. Uh, But the first thing I remember seeing her in was in a poorly received, but I thought very well done remake of The Omen. Yes. Did you see it? Did you see the remake? No, I've seen, I saw the trailer for the remake. As you know, I'm not much of a remake guy. Well, let me sell it to you on this this premise. One, the crazy woman is played by Mia Farrow, which right. ex- excellent casting. Uh, Julie Stiles plays the mom, and uh-huh. I would, if if forced to choose, I would go and watch the remake simply because the sound levels in the original are so uneven. I can't watch it. Oh uh, well, okay, that's a valid critique, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to beat Gregory Peck in a drama, especially a weird ass supernatural drama. His mother but was a if, jackal. <laughs> if you have a hard time, sorry, I haven't the, said that in a while. The way that the sound, the way that the sound is mixed, that's definitely going to impact yeah. uh, your ability to enjoy the film. If you have an hour and a half, look at look at the uh, the remake. She does she does an excellent job at it. Will do. All right, moving on to the 29th. Hey, we just talked about this guy, March the 29th, 1943, British comedian and Monty Python troupe alumni Eric Idle. Arguably the funniest uh, yes. one of the troop. Uh, yeah, arguably. Arguably, I would agree. Yep. We brought that up before. Every time yeah. I try to say Eric Idle is the funniest, oh, John Cleese pops into my head. But yes, Eric Idle was it, also the narrator for a Epcot centered ride with Figment. I can't remember the name of the ride, but I remember seeing him there, and I was like, oh, very good, Eric Idle. He's also Dirk McQuickly in The Ruddles, my favorite spoof Beatles thing. Yep, you, you bring that up from time to time, and there's two people that know about the Ruddles, and you are both of them. Actually, I'm both of them. Right now, yes. in my field of vision, I dropped some DVDs on the ground the other day when I was looking for something, and just so happened, I could see it right now, I'll, I'll, I'm pointing at it. You can't tell, but I am, I'm pointing at it, is a DVD of the Ruddles. See? I have it, it's right you there. watch it. Yep. I don't have to watch it. it. It's listen to you talk about it all the time. Well, it started with a like a show that he was on after Monty Python went off the air called Rutland Television, which was like a spoof of a small, small town cable access show. Okay. And that's sort of where that came from. And then he ended up, you know, because Python was making films, 
in between the films he would work on that show. All right, moving on to the 30th. March 30th, 1930. American actor John Astin. Probably best known as a Edgar Allan Poe scholar who does a one-man play called Once Upon a Midnight, Bill. Do you recognize <laughs> that? He's probably best known for maybe <laughs> playing Judge Stone's father. It may not be Judge Stone's father. It may be just a crazy person on Night Court. John Ashton. Oh, that's right. John Ashton, yeah, ladies he probably, and got, he, pro- he probably got that job because he did that, that little bit of time on TV in the 60s as Gomez Adams on the American uh, sitcom The Adams Family. Yes, the original Gomez Adams on television. Also, yes. the second Riddler on the Batman TV series. Yes. I actually did see him as Edgar Allan Poe oh, yeah. in Once Upon a Midnight. Yeah, I saw that play. He's a very... I want to say it was like back in 1999. It was fantastic. He's a very gifted actor. He's got a very comedic patter to his voice. Even He could be saying, uh, uh, put it this way, I'm trying to imagine him doing the Edgar Allan Poe things, and I can kind of see it because he's, I could see him you know, doing the faces and the look of, of Edgar Allan Poe. But at the same time, I'm so used to him being Gomez or the Riddler or Harry Stone's crazy father. Right. It's hard for me to picture him being serious, but I'm sure he could do it. Well, you don't have to picture him because there are some clips of him in in costume doing segments of that on YouTube from back in the early 2000s and the late 1990s. Uh-huh. So you can see him like read the Raven or the Bells or whatever, and you get a feel for what it was like. He was really good. And, and again, he's a scholar, so he knows Poe's work and wrote the play that he's in and maintains a Poe library and really writes papers on Poe and stuff. All right, moving on to the 31st, March 31st, 1943. Uh, another person, a very serious actor who's got amazing comedic timing, uh, Mr. Christopher Walken, probably best known for playing the role of Max Zorin in A View to a Kill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, I don't believe you sprung that one. I don't even have one that's as good as that. <laughs> so, or probably best known for Quentin Tarantino fans as the guy who brings... Bruce Willis's father's watch back from Vietnam and explains how Bruce Willis's father held the watch up his ass to keep it safe from the Viet Cong. <laughs> so Christopher Walken really made a name for himself in 1978's uh, Oscar uh, winning The Deer Hunter. Yes. And unfortunately for him, and I've just read an article where he was kind of bitching about it, is after all the things that he's done, he's got a very, 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 very long pedigree. All the things he's done, the only thing that people ever, ever talk to him about is the cowbell sketch from Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Well, admittedly, that's one of the greatest sketches in that show's history. Yep. He is one of the greatest guests on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that 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 gets seen more than, you know, the audience for Saturday Night Live is probably bigger week over week than the entire audience that saw The Deer Hunter when it ran, as good as The Deer Hunter is. Sure. I have a number of DVDs of, like, the best of Saturday Night Live, like the best of Dan Aykroyd, the best of right. Bill Murray, the best of Steve Martin. And that the reason I even bring up Steve Martin is because Steve Martin was never a cast member. On Saturday right. Night Live. And neither was Christopher Walken. But Christopher Walken right. has two best of DVDs <laughs> yeah. that you can buy. Yes. Because and they're his, worth having just for the Continental sketches. Yeah. So, but because he was, you know, he was a guest host on there so often. And all of his sketches are just solid gold because he's, <laughs> he, 
he <laughs> is very funny at being serious, if that makes yes. sense. Yeah. And have it, you ever seen? True. Have you ever seen the video for? Oh, I, I think the name of the song is "Weapon of Choice" by Fat Boy yeah, Slim. Yeah, Fat Boy. Yeah, Fat Boy Slim. Yeah. Yeah, with Christopher Walken dancing all over the place. It's phenomenal. Yes. It's great. All right, moving on. April first, nineteen thirty-two. American actress and song and dancer Debbie Reynolds, who I first saw on public broadcast television when my dad let us watch Singing in the Rain when I was a little kid. Yeah. And that was my first exposure to Debbie Reynolds. Had no idea that she continued in Hollywood for years. Because that movie's an old movie. Uh, Continued for years and years and years into Hollywood until like the 1990s. I remember just, you know, being obsessed with Star Wars when I was a kid. And... You know, Princess Leia, Princess Leia, Princess Leia, and all that. And my mother or my father saying, oh, yeah, that's Debbie Reynolds' kid. And I was like, who the hell is Debbie Reynolds? Right. My mom was a huge fan of Debbie Reynolds. And this, I can't say this is a regret because it wasn't my fault. But later on in my mother's life, Debbie Reynolds was coming in concert to one of the casinos. You know, for, for my friends that live elsewhere in the country outside of New England, the casinos are only 80 miles away. But in my right. mother's mind, they are states away because the casinos are in Connecticut. So that's two states right. away. And I was like, hey, Ma, Debbie Reynolds is coming to the casinos. Can I take you to go see Debbie Reynolds for your birthday? And I didn't really want to give my mother that birthday present. I wanted to go see Debbie Reynolds and I wanted an excuse to go. But right, my right. mom was like, oh, I don't travel. I'm like, you don't have to travel, Ma. You just sit in the passenger seat. I got you. I'm driving. Right. And right. no, you're, she, you're not hitchhiking anymore. You're riding. Yeah. But yeah, she wasn't into it. She didn't want to go. It was too far. It was like, it's only 80 miles for Christ's sake, Ma. Right. Yep. I wanted to go see Debbie Reynolds, um, and I really would have loved to have taken my mom, but she wasn't into it. It's a shame. I remember running into her, one of her later films, which became one of my favorites, called Mother with Albert Brooks, where she played the Albert Brooks's mother. And he had moved back home to do some writing because he was a writer who was suffering from writer's block. And he came to the realization over the course of this reestablishing relationship with his mother that she resented him and gave up everything she wanted to do as an adult to raise him. The movie's funny, but it's also really poignant and and well done. It's probably the best thing he's done uh, that I can remember. And it's one of the best that she did. Worth checking out if you have the opportunity. I will look for that if you promise to look for The Omen. I will look for The Omen. (laughs) And then wrapping up the week, speaking of Star Wars, wrapping up the week is April the 2nd, 1914, Sir Alec Guinness, better known to the world Uh, as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Old Ben? Yep. Old Hermit? Yeah. Was out by the Dune Sea. Close enough to Luke Skywalker that it's impossible that he couldn't have been found by Darth Vader. One of the most endearing characters uh, to come out of the Star Wars saga, if you ask me. Yep. Enough so that the story of his character was carried on through. It was carried on through the the three prequel movies, a whole mini series about him, all of the Clone Wars. Yep. And and it was it originated with George Lucas's typing and Alec Guinness's ability to make crappy writing come to life. And yeah, famously, he's, he's fantastic. Famously, Alec Guinness hated. Star Wars, hated being in it, hated the character, hated the script, hated everything, and used to talk, you know, down about Star Wars fans and stuff. Right. And it's like, I don't know, dude, man. That's, I mean, take the Michael Caine approach. You know, I never saw the movie, but I saw the house that it bought. 
<laughs> right. Well, I'm sure there was. He, he talked less smack about Star Wars once. He's, I'm sure he was looking at the checks and going like, "That's an awful lot of zeros on that check." Right. There's a lot of zeros on that. Holy mackerel! You know, I played Doctor Chowdhury in A Passage to India, which got me an Academy Award, and I got residual checks for that movie too. Yeah. There's like ten less zeros on, <laughs> on, those, on those checks. <laughs> and you know what's funny so. is all the movies that he. You know, that's in his pedigree, like the Bridge Over the right. River, Lawrence of Arabia, et cetera, et right. cetera, et cetera. I've never seen any of his other movies. The only other movie I've ever seen Alec Guinness in is Murder by Death. <laughs> when he plays. Which, yep. well, I mean, let's call it Spade a Spade. It's a funny movie, but it's not exactly... High cinema. High yeah, it's not cinema. Ben-Hur, right, yeah. So, yeah. because I had never seen him in anything else, I was like, this is what he would rather do than Star Wars? This guy's out of his mind. He was really good in A Passage to India, and he was really, 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 really good in Bridge on the River Kwai. Like, amazingly good for that film. It was an astonishingly good movie. So. Okay, Jeff, here it is, okay? Dear listeners, pre-show, uh, Jeff and I had been talking about and making jokes about this week's... Worst song ever. We have been making jokes about today's worst song ever for like the entire pre-show and like two weeks ago when I brought this up to you. Yes. This is the <laughs> funniest piece of music I can... I can't even describe this. Hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have so much information in my head to, and jokes to make about this song, I don't know, even know where to start. The name of this band is Nitro. The Nitro. name of this song is Freight Train. This <laughs> came out in the tail end of the hair metal days. And this is, and this is what happens when you try to sing too high, you try to have too much double bass on the drums, and your guitar player is trying to play too goddamn fast. Listen <laughs> at your own peril. Listen to how ridiculous this is. This even got recorded. It's it smells like Aquanet in here, Bill. <laughs> I can this, smell it. This you song smell smells Aquanet. like Aquanet. Yes. Uh, yeah. When you threw this video at me, I had no idea who Nitro was at the time that this record came out. I wasn't listening to metal at all that I can remember. But oh boy, <laughs> oh boy, when I. I put this on and listened through, and I kept thinking to myself, like, is there something wrong with the audio? There's something weird about the audio. It's like, it's, it everything. wobbles. Yeah, well, it, it turns out it's everything. It's it's when you try <laughs> to put every single ingredient in your spice cabinet into your scrambled eggs. <laughs> You're just not going right. to get good scrambled eggs, right? So let's start at the beginning here. Um, okay. This, ba this band here, Nitro, they Nitro. have 
exactly two albums. OFR, which is the one that this is from, and then Mm -hmm. another album called HWDWS. But we will get to that after. (laughs) This album here, OFR, stands for Out-F***ing-Rageous. Now, it should have been called LDR, which is the Law of Diminishing Returns, because (laughs) everything about this band was to 11. Yeah, if you listen to this, your brain is going to keep telling you. It doesn't matter who you are, first of all, Mm -hmm. but your brain is going to keep going, they can't be doing this by mistake. This is like on purpose. (laughs) They're doing this on purpose. This is like spinal tap level on purpose. Like, am I in on the joke? Is this like, is there like a funny liner note in here that's going to tell me? Because it is so far beyond ridiculous that it, it even surpasses out of parody. And into, like, the unknown of, like, maybe it is parody. Maybe, I don't know, maybe these guys were serious and just delusional. Who knows? How do you get four delusional people together like this? All right, so we'll start off with the the band's singer. His name is Jim Gillette, or Jim Gillette. And his hair is, like, (laughs) I, I don't want to throw the word parody around like we keep doing, but it is. Like, if there was an, an episode of The Simpsons and they were going to have a glam rock band, his hair is exactly how I would draw it on The Simpsons. <laughs> I saw, I, as I watched the video of him, I thought to myself, like, he's the one guy I can imagine. And they get a phone call like, hey, do you want to go? We're going to go out and get beers and, you know, hang out and talk for a while. I can't. I'm washing my hair tonight. Because it looks like it's a six-hour endeavor yeah, to do. It's, and it's, it's going to take a whole bottle of Dr. Bronner's soap to make that stuff clean. Yeah. It is bright white. It's like chalk white. <laughs> I can't believe how white that guy's hair is. Right. It comes out like one of those fiber optic lamps that you used to buy at Spencer's. And it just keeps going and going and going. It looks like it weighs more than anything you could put in a backpack. <laughs> it just looks like it weighs a lot. It looks like there's a lot of work being done. At this time in metal history, singing high was like this commodity. And I, I blame right. Jeff Tate for that, even though Rob Halford from Judas Priest, you know, probably yeah, he, kicked that ball down the road first. I agree. But this guy sings so high and then he like harmonizes with himself on the track. Yeah. But it sounds like it's not a tune. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're not good harmonies. They're like conflicting harmonies. It's like a car horn. Yeah, it's really as I was listening to it, I asked you like, is he is he providing the background track for the chorus as well, which is like an octave higher than this, than what he's singing along with it? It's like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah. Because no one else appears to be singing, in the at least in the video. But on every song, there is some background vocals, and it reminded me of that Aqua song. Because, <laughs> like, on this song, Freight Train is like, I'm fed, and like that. There'll be some guys going, I'm on the freight train, baby! Like, like that. That's the background <laughs> vocals on all the other songs. If it's not him uh, doing this, who can sing along with this? Imagine listening right. to this in the car. Right. Or somebody else's car, not my car. Listening right. to it, and they're like playing this and singing along with it. I'm jumping out like that Snickers commercial. Oh my God. I, I, can you imagine, like, which part do you want to take? I'll take the part where he shrieks mercilessly at, at flat A. How about yeah. you? Well, I'll take the part where he can't quite make it to E. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to lean on the horn. Why don't we just throw the tape out the window? That's usually what happens <laughs> with stuff like this. The other thing, too, is he sings so high 
so many octaves up that he could be singing out of key. You wouldn't know because your ears right. don't register that high. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I had this on through regular speakers earlier. And my dog went into heat, so I'm sure that was <laughs> related to, to that. And the whole thing is, Jeff, we haven't even gotten to the ridiculous part of this band yet, okay? Um, what does that tell you? Yeah, right. I mean, there, there's a drummer and a bass player, too, and the drummer does the same beat on, like, right. every song. Every the song. bass player yeah. is whatever. The guitar player. His name is... <laughs> his name is Ingray. Michael Ant. No, it's not Ingray. Ingray. Almost Malmsteen. Almost yeah. Malmsteen. <laughs> no, his name is Michael Angelo, and he is cartoonish. And I don't mean cartoonish like a cartoon turtle, which would make sense with a name like Michelangelo. <laughs> right. No, he plays so fast. I actually slowed the like the the music down just to like try to count beats to see how fast he was playing because right. there's certain parts in the thing. I know a little bit about music, okay, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Most of the time, everything can be divided by two. You know, right. so you could have four beats and then he would be playing 16. So there'd be, you know, four, four notes for every, for every beat, so to speak. He's playing so fast. I don't even know if what he's playing is divisible. It's just like a, <laughs> a mush. It's just like, look what I can do. Like that. Yeah. You know, when you say that and you think about like the continuous, like it's they've, they've got a fast drum beat too. They do a lot of fast changes between verse and chorus and verse and bridge. Because yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that the fifth member of this band was just a pile of cocaine that was human-sized right. and may very well have been fueling all of the recording sessions. Like, just, uh, just you know what, just push all those things to the top, like on the board. Push them all up. Put it, yeah, yeah, put them all up. Yeah, we can play it faster, you know, <laughs> over and over again until, until you end up with this mush of a record. It gets even more and more ridiculous. I'm watching Michelangelo, in, you know, in this video, Yep. And he's playing, and he's got this style of playing that he does. So picture somebody, you know, playing a guitar, and they're holding the neck, and they got their palm of their hand underneath the neck of the guitar, like yep. you do, like a standard person plays guitar. Right. He will do that, and then he'll move his hand to the top. So now the palm of his hand is on the top of the neck, and he's playing with the fingers facing down. And then he'll right. go back and forth and back and forth, like... Again, look what I can do. Look what I can do. <laughs> and I'm watching this video, and I'm just like, would you just play Just play the goddamn guitar? This is like <laughs> watching a circus a act. Right, just do a chord. Like, just do a show an F-bar chord. And then, if, as if all of this up until now hasn't been ridiculous enough, the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my freaking life happens this X-shaped guitar lowers from the ceiling and Michelangelo takes a hold of it. This guitar, That's where I think this becomes Spinal Tap, to be honest with you. That's where I, I realize that, like, oh, you know what? This might be a crock of that I'm looking at right now. But it's is not. It's that guitar. <laughs> what makes all of this so freaking hilarious is the fact that these guys were serious. Yeah. Michelangelo's X guitar gets lowered from the ceiling. Now, this guitar has four necks, four sets of pickups. It's basically four guitars in the shape right. of an X. And yes. then he's playing it standard. Strum right hand, guitar left. 
And but our friend uh, Michelangelo is ambidextrous, and God <laughs> damn it, Jeff, you're gonna know he's ambidextrous because <laughs> he plays the guitar in the standard, you know, one position. Then he right. moves down to the other neck. Then he yep. goes over to the left-handed neck, and he's playing left-handed. Left-handed. And then he switches hands, and he's playing the left-handed guitar one hand over the other and playing it right-handed and just doing this like... <laughs> which doesn't even sound like it goes with the song. It's just it's crazy yeah. stupid fast. Uh, my friend Chris, who's a guitar player, said, do you know why the guitar solo in Comfortably Numb is so good? Because you can sing it. You can yeah. sing that guitar slow. Right. I don't even know who could sing along with this. Like the guy from the Micro Machine commercials from when we were kids. <laughs> right. Or Michael that, Winslow just making sounds. Yeah, but, you know. And uh, another thing, too. Uh, my friend Rob, who's a guitar player, pointed this out to me. And you're a guitar player, so you know. Uh, you know what I'm not a guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. I have guitars. Sometimes I touch them. And usually when I do, I get a cease and desist record uh, letter from whoever the manufacturer of that instrument is. So, In my beware. opinion, you are a better guitar player than this guy because this, this guy is not a guitar player. He, oh, he, can, is... he can play almost all the way through Wish You Were Here once? Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, do you know what hammer-ons and pull-offs are? I do, yes. Okay, so explain it real quick. A hammer-on just means that you're putting your finger down on the string, but it's not the hand that you have the pick in or that you're strumming with. It's with the finger that makes the notes and you hammer down and it, it generates a it generates a sound when you hammer down and when you pull off you might be in like a one note and then when you pull off it's going to release the string and it'll continue to play but in the root note of whatever that string is right so that's hammer if you pull -off. listen to a michelangelo guitar solo and i'm just going to insert it right here hammer-ons and pull-offs every note <laughs> that you're hearing he is hitting with the pick that He's is shredding very, that is very uh, fast that is, that is more than fast. shredding that is like sewing machine kind of like accuracy yep and you can hear like on every note you can hear that little whenever the the pick hits a string yeah it's, it's like he wants you to know i'm hitting every string I'm hitting every string. I'm, I'm, I'm is, playing this really fast. Look at how fast I'm playing. I know. Yeah. It, this is but, good. Do you know how, know how good it is? It's that it's fast. It's fast, right. and therefore it's good. You know, we always talk about how Nirvana's uh, Meteor. <laughs> yeah, you know, wiped out hair metal. Wiped out yes. the hair metal, but... Nitro, who, who debuted, what, in 89, right? So he told me. Yeah. Uh, debuted in 89. That's in the shadow of the comet that is Nirvana on its way to planet Earth. So right. they would have been, you know, if you think paleontologically, they would have been the, the most advanced Tyrannosaurus Rexes to ever be born right before the Doomsday Comet wiped out <laughs> the dinosaurs. So they would have it's been a, probably the first Tyrannosaurus Rexes with arms long enough to scratch their nose. Yeah, a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex with opposable thumbs. <laughs> with opposable right. thumbs. Who could do math. And uh, it doesn't matter because they're going to be gone. Yeah. Wiped out I, in a couple of years. Honestly, I think that the... The, the heavy metal, as it, as it were, I think it would have ended naturally anyway with or without Nirvana because at this point it just got too much, you know? Well, these um, guys they, were almost like four cousin its by the time this, this record came out. <laughs> like you couldn't go any further and not be 
like the band that Disney put together that was meant to be like a Star Wars band or a bunch of effectively Chewbacca's who were just playing metal. I mean, it's you, how much further could you go? Well, they went a little further. They put out a second album uh, <laughs> called... Uh, they put out a second album in 1992, so a year after Nevada broke, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so guess how well that did. Right. Um, I'm sure it was a huge seller. Their parents probably bought a couple copies each. And, put it uh, this way. It's not on Spotify. The first album is, but the second album isn't. Nope. This album was called HWDWS, which stands for... Are you ready for this? Hot, <laughs> I'm ready. Hot, wet, dripping with sweat. Ugh. Uh, yep. Yes. You know why? It's because their part-time job that they were doing in between gigs was they were landscapers, Bill. I'm pretty sure that's why that's they were yep. called that. So, uh, real quick before we wrap up the segment... Uh, okay. While they were still active, and they were only active like you know two three years, while they were still active, somebody stole that X guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that's I'm not gonna laugh about that. I, I probably am gonna laugh about that a little bit, but that's that sucks. I mean, that was a custom built thing that. Yep. I'm sure some luthier was paid in you know promises and hairspray aroma to make yep. for him, and knew it was going to be used in a video, and it was going to bring a lot of business into the guitar center where he worked, and all of a sudden, nope. Well, the half of a happy ending to that story was in 2004, a fan returned, you know, had tracked down and found the X guitar. But at this point, this guitar was a V guitar because it was broken in half. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't find it in the dumpster behind Rick Nielsen's house, did he? <laughs> no, he he did get half of his guitar back, Mister oh, Michelangelo. Well, which, uh, if I was him, I'd probably try to sell it because uh, I don't know how much money uh, Nitro ever generated for him. He's certainly not going to be getting Alec in his Star Wars money. That's for sure. Definitely not. Uh, matter of fact, he could probably have enough money to break a dollar, Jeff. Oh. There, we are coming back to my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff, uh -oh. I need change for a dollar. How many different ways are there to make change for a dollar? Oh, man. This is a already gave you question. Three. You already gave me three. I'm just going to throw a number out there then. Yep. 74. There are 293 different ways to make change for a dollar. Man. Using That's penny, like dimes, nickels, and quarters, and 50 cent pieces. Thank God my the freight train of my math and money knowledge doesn't go that fast. I'm on the freight train, baby! <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's even going... I, I'm not even done with freight train yet. The, the other thing about it is freight train is far and away from the worst song on that album. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a ballad on there, too, that makes you just want to punch yourself right in the crotch. There certainly is. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you next week. We'll on the freight train, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week, guys. We'll see you in seven days. Bye, guys. Good night, oh, wait, everybody. Uh, wait, say freight train, Jeff. <laughs> freight train, Jeff. Freight train! Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, when you tell your friends and get them to listen to Twibbly, it makes you popular and always well-received.